0: Thank you, Ryan, and the band for leading us. Can you hear me in the back? Okay. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. We are having a family adventure here, all nice and cozy as we are. And let's pray that the air conditioner keeps working so it doesn't get mighty hot. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ezra. So after spending some time in the New Testament book of Colossians and then a bit of an intermission in the Psalms and Proverbs, we begin now a combined study of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And these two books are divided in our Protestant Bibles, but in the Hebrew Scriptures they were actually one book, and one scroll, up until the invention of the printing press. So all the way up into the 1400s. They were one book. So I'm going to be referring to them really as one, referring to them together, Ezra and Nehemiah. And strictly speaking, Ezra and Nehemiah are anonymous when it comes to authorship. Uh, But much of Ezra is written from the first person. From the perspective of Ezra, much of Nehemiah is written in first person from the perspective of Nehemiah, so they both have contributed. And I've found in my studies a compelling reason to see Ezra the priest as the compiler of First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, and he himself being the author of much of that. So, uh, indeed, Ezra, as, as we come to learn, had a lot to do with the Uh, the final arrangement of the whole Old Testament, the order of the Psalms that we have them in, uh, etc. Ezra had a lot to do with that. So his impact in the Scriptures is very significant. My assignment today is to lay the groundwork and to build a foundation, a necessary foundation, so that we can all have our bearings as we make our way through this important section of the Scriptures. The inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God. And so I pray that the Lord will bless our time together for the sake of His great name. As we begin, I want to ask some questions. I want you to think about these for a minute. Perhaps they're questions that we might all be tempted to ask or at least wonder about in the privacy of our own minds. Haunting questions for trying times. Is God really in control of all things? I mean, really, is He in control of all things? We look at the news. We look at the aggression of wicked people in powerful places. We look at the rapid deconstruction of our society. Or we look in the mirror at the seemingly chaotic events of our individual lives. Our crumbling health, perhaps, or painful loss. And this question has a way of rising up. Is God really in control? Here's another question. Is God actually faithful to His promises no matter what? Sure, God has made promises to His people. What about when His people blow it? Now I'm talking about atomic bomb, mushroom cloud kind of blowing it. What about then? Will He ever go back on His covenant promises to His people? Perhaps the third haunting question this morning. From cover to cover, is the Bible true? Or to borrow the language from Romans 9, has the Word of God ever failed? Is there any promise, any prophecy, any statement of Scripture that at any time has proven to be untrue? Well, remember these questions because Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 can really help us if we ever struggle with questions and thoughts like these before we get there, we have some heavy lifting to do. And so let's seek the aid of our Heavenly Father before we roll up our sleeves and get after it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank You for the precious gift of the Scriptures. We pray that You would send Your Holy Spirit to help us. Open our eyes that we might see to see Your glory. Open our ears that we can hear the truth. May it reach beyond our intellect only and impact our hearts. Help me, I pray, to glorify You and not to seek my own glory. For the sake of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. I'll read uh, Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4, but our attention will be in verse 1 for this morning. So give your attention, please, and hear the word of the Lord. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... "...whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts besides free will offerings for the house of god that is in jerusalem. and we thank god for his word may he add his blessing to it. here's the point for today. if you're a note taker, time to pull out your pen. here's where we're aiming. as long as I'll say it twice. Ezra helps us and particularly Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 helps us to marvel at the lord of glory who is king of kings, who directs even pagan conquerors of this world to accomplish His purposes and to preserve His people. He is in control. He is faithful. His word is true. So I'll say it again. Ezra helps us to marvel at the Lord of glory, who is king of kings who directs even pagan conquerors of this world to accomplish His purposes and to preserve His people. He is in control, He is faithful, and His Word is true. Okay, so let's put on our thinking caps. Let's roll up our sleeves for a few minutes. Because to mine the riches of God's word takes a little bit of elbow grease. So let's do a little digging. We're going to approach our time together under three headings, Context, Layout, and the Glory of God. And first we need to build that context if we're going to actually read verse 1 the way it's intended to be read. Okay, Verse 1 is not one of those that we just rush over to get to the heart of the matter. Verse 1 is very important. So, heading number one, the biblical historical context. Even though it might sound ridiculous, maybe it sounds ridiculous to you, it does to me. There may be one or two people in this world who hear the word history and immediately become drowsy. <laughs> Hopefully they're not in the room this morning. Uh, yet, as uh, Christian Bible-believing Christians, I hope that we... Are learning that history is more than just the study of dry facts and old stuff and dead people. Rather, if our worldview is being shaped by regular study of the Bible, then we're going to see that history is, as the cliche goes, His story. One pastor explains it like this. History is a story of God's governance over the nations to accomplish His eternal purpose and to show forth His eternal glory. He continues, History is truly the Lord's story of His redemptive work, of His display of judgment to the nations and on the nations, and the preservation of His people in every generation. End quote. God's work in the world through the millennia And particularly, His redemptive work to save a people for Himself is meant to result in the praise of His glory, as Ephesians 1 teaches us. So ultimately, history is the story of God. So let's look at a few samples across the ages to see just little glimpses of how history is the story of God, and this this uh, fills in the background as we move through the stuff. Fills in the background, leading us up to verse one. So, if we were to skip a rock across a pond, and we do so, we move across history that way. The first touchdown that we have would be in the Garden of Eden. The fall of man happens in Genesis three, verse six as Adam and Eve gave in to the temptations of the serpents, plunging the world into sin and ruin. If you want to know where it started, that's where it started. God pronounced a curse which marred all of creation, including ourselves, our bodies, our minds, our affections. But amid all the tragedy, a promise was made. The Lord said to the serpent, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first reference in the Bible to the coming Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom Ezra Nehemiah helps to prepare us for. And hopefully as we move through the book, you'll begin to see how that unfolds. Well around the year 2000 BC God gave by his sovereign grace he, he called Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans Ur of the Chaldeans for that is Babylonia curiously enough and led him to Canaan land changed his name to Abraham and made covenant promises to him Genesis 12 Genesis 15 17 One of which was this in Genesis 12.3, In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Redeemer would come through the family of Abraham. Another 500 years go by and Abraham's descendants, they find themselves slaves in Egypt. The Lord worked mightily through Moses and Aaron to redeem His people, His chosen people out of bondage and into the promised land, great act of redemption of the Old Testament. God was keeping His promises. He was redeeming a people for Himself. These acts and events in history and the people that were a part of them are the unfolding of God's story. As they were preparing to enter the Promised Land, Moses warned the people in Deuteronomy 4. This is 25 to 31. I'll read it to you. He gave them a warning. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly... By making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke Him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve God as a wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God." He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that He swore to them. It was over a thousand years before Ezra 1.1 when Moses wrote that. Yet these words precisely describe what would eventually take place. Time went on from there. Israel conquered the land Around 1000 B.C., the monarchy was established. And during the reign of King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the kingdom split in two until 722 B.C. when the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel because of that exact thing, because of covenant unfaithfulness, their idolatry and all its associated evils. Well, Judah was left until 586 B.C. when that southern kingdom suffered the same disaster at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. If you're in Ezra 1, just look at the previous page. 2 Chronicles 36. And I'm going to read a few verses there. Verse 15 through 21. 2 Chronicles 36. This is up at the end of that time for Judah. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people until there was no remedy. Therefore He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that is, the Babylonians, who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into His hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these He brought to Babylon." And they burned the house of God. And they broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. God was displaying His holiness through judgment on the nations. History is the story of God. Well, Judah remained under the domination of Babylon until October 539 B.C. When King Belshazzar saw that mysterious writing on the wall from Daniel chapter 5, remember that? That very night, Babylon fell. It was vanquished by the Medo-Persian conqueror Cyrus the Great. The same Cyrus that we encounter in Ezra 1.1. 1, 1. Volumes more could be said, but alas, we must save that for another time. I, I cut out quite a bit of those volumes more uh, for you this morning. I had a lot more to say, but if I kept going, you might have something to say to me. So, <laughs> on to our second heading the layout of these books, Ezra and Nehemiah. So they carry forth, they continue this unfolding story of God's redemption of His people. Okay, We ran up to that point, Ezra and Nehemiah continue to carry that forward. And they together span approximately 138 years. These two books cover from 538 B.C. to about 400 B.C. The reign of six Persian kings, five of them are named in this book. Uh, The book of Esther falls within this time frame too, just FYI. Much uh, like the four Gospels of the New Testament, though Ezra and Nehemiah are not strict chronology. They're pretty much in chronological order, but the the idea is not to be organized by strict chronology and more in accordance with events of restoration and the men who led those events. So especially in chapter 4, it will it will have an excursus and we'll leave the chronology for a time and then we'll come back. You'll notice that. Uh, these, these events of restoration, there are three of them. They begin in Ezra chapters 1 to 6, the first one with the res- return of the the exiles about 538 BC under the leadership of Zerubbabel and they came back to rebuild the temple. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah have a lot of important ministry that takes place in those days to help motivate the people to finish the temple, and they do so in 516 B.C. So that's the first return. And then the second one is about 80 years later, under the leadership of Ezra the priest. This is Ezra chapter 7 through 10. And Ezra and his associates come back to reestablish the Mosaic Covenant and to rebuild the community on the Word of God. So they rebuild the temple in the first one. The second return, rebuild the community on the Word of God. And then finally, uh, when we get to the book of Nehemiah, we have a third restoration effort that Nehemiah the governor leads. This is about 14 years after Ezra. And he comes to twice. First to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, 444 B.C. That's chapters 1 through 12 of Nehemiah. And then, once more, to tidy up ongoing troubles among the not-so-faithful people in 432 B.C. That's chapter 13 of Nehemiah. Malachi, his ministry falls within this time frame as well. So each of these three returns and these three return efforts follow the same pattern. It's by the command of a Persian king... And with His provision, it is uh, when they get there and begin the work, they are hotly oppressed by peoples in the land. And then at each point, God's gracious hand was at work among them for restoration. So all along the way through the ups and the downs, the Lord was at work among His people, calling them back to Himself, providing in their times of distress, and preserving a faithful remnant for Himself. History is the story of God. Well, now that we have a little context, we have the layout of the land generally, let's change gears. Okay, and we're going to uh, seek to behold the glory of God in verse 1. So our third heading, a pagan king and the glory of God. So put yourself into the shoes of the individual Israelites, enduring exile in Babylon having been violently ripped from their families and homeland via untold horrors of war, ancient war, driven like cattle across the Middle Eastern terrain and resettled among foreign peoples with a godless culture, strange language, strange everything, never at home with any aspect of life. After nearly seven decades in exile, might we find ourselves asking those original questions that we opened with? Is God really in control of all things? Is God truly faithful to His promises no matter what? Has the Word of God failed? Look at again, verse 1 of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. This one verse is bursting at the seams with meaning for the people of God who flounder, who struggle, who doubt. The first one shows us a few things, first of which is this God is gloriously in control. Well, how, how is that exactly in verse 1? Well, look at the main clause of this verse. It says a bunch of stuff, but the main clause, the heart of the statement is, God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So yeah, there's this new world conqueror in town, but God is the chief actor here. Proverbs 21 verse 11 teaches us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Sure, mighty Cyrus issues this royal edict, but it's the Lord who's behind his actions. It's the Lord, the text says, stirring him to accomplish God's purposes. Did you know that the Lord said that He would do this exact thing with this exact person two centuries earlier? Turn with me to Isaiah 44. I want you to see this. So hold Ezra 1. Turn to the right to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, verse 1 tells us to whom, uh, I'm sorry, not verse 1, uh, 24, Isaiah 44, 24, uh, the Lord begins to speak in reference to Cyrus, so let's see what he says. Verse 24, thus says the Lord your Redeemer. By the way, pay attention to how the Lord speaks about himself in this passage. All right, verse 24, thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things. "...who alone stretch out the heavens, who spread out the earth by Myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools out of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of His servant and fulfills the counsel of His messengers, who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, They shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins." Who says to the deep, Be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. 45.1 Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before Him and loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you, the Lord says to Cyrus, and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and the secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well being and create calamity. I, the Lord, I am the Lord who does all these things. Skip down to verse 12 and 13. Still speaking of Cyrus. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up, stirred up Cyrus in righteousness. And I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So Cyrus, his entire wicked, idol-worshipping, nation-destroying life... God superintended his actions and successes to bring about his own purposes. Just like in the case of Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery, or even the murderous Jews who turned over Messiah to the Romans, rejecting him. The willful actions of pagan Cyrus were serving the purposes of God. Joseph told his brothers in Genesis Fifty twenty. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And speaking of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, the Apostle Peter declared to the crowds in his day, on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, Acts 2, and 24 this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. Murderous Jews rejected the Savior. They turned Him over to the brutality of Rome according to the definite plan of God and Cyrus released the Jews from exile according to the definite plan of God. God is sovereign. He reigns with complete control over the details of this entire world and over the details of your life. It might not feel like it from our vantage point, but from the Lord's brothers and sisters, there's no such thing as an out-of-control situation. So dear saints, find confidence and rest in God who is gloriously in control of all things. Verse 1 shows us something else. It also shows us that God is gloriously faithful. Look again there. It says, "...the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that He made a proclamation throughout all His kingdom." and also put it in writing. So Israel and Judah were sent into exile because God was faithful to the threatened judgments of the Mosaic Covenant at Sinai. They're there because God is faithful. And now, because of the same enduring covenant faithfulness of God, they are being redeemed from exile By God, who stirred up Cyrus to make this proclamation. Remember what we read Moses saying in Deuteronomy 4:31? He said, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you, or destroy you, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. The proclamation of Cyrus there in verses 2 through 4: Shout, God is faithful. The faithfulness of the Lord has been the fortress of his people throughout the ages. I mean, it's all over the Bible. 1 Samuel 12, 22 says, The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Psalm 94, 14, The Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Hebrews 13, 5, He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 2 Timothy 2, 13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Imitation three twenty two and 23. Stead, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Commentator Derek Thomas helps us here. Getting back into the mind of the ex, the exiled Jews. So God had not forsaken His promise to save His people. Difficult it must have been in exile to imagine how this was to be done, the promise of their return fueled in the faithful a conviction that even in their darkest hour, the promises of God are sure and certain. Do you need to hear that this morning? Do you need to be reminded again that God is gloriously faithful? He is gloriously faithful. Notice one last truth here from verse 1. God's Word is gloriously true. Do you see the purpose clause there in that verse? That the Word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So God stirred up Cyrus at this precise time because his word through the prophet of Jeremiah said he would. I want you to see this too with your own eyes. Turn again to the right to Jeremiah this time. Isaiah, then Jeremiah, chapter 25. Jeremiah 25, verse 1 tells us to whom He's speaking, then we'll jump down to verse 8. The word of the that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of uh, Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So this is before the exile begins. Jeremiah prophesied in the, day, the last days leading up to exile and then in the first uh, series of days after the exile began. That's when his ministry was. And so he's writing to those before the exile begins. Go down to verse 8. through therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations, I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish them. I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become, shall, this whole land shall become, excuse me, a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. And then look at chapter 29. He says it again. Jeremiah 29 verse 1 again tells us to whom he's writing. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is after the first of the three waves of, of exiles. It happened in three stages. This is after the first. So this is early on, about 605. He says there in verse 10 now, Thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. uh, You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Does that sound familiar from Deuteronomy 4? We just read. I I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God said it would happen. And it happened. The prophet Daniel was alive in Cyrus overthrew Babylon. And as that time neared, he was studying these very same passages in Jeremiah. And Daniel was moved to repentance and praise as he prayed in Daniel chapter 9. That aged prophet and man of God was moved by the reliability of God's Word. The same was true of King David who wrote in his old age Psalm 37:25 I have been young and now am old yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken Elderly Joshua testified at the end of his life Joshua 23:14 Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth and you know in your hearts and souls all of you that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you, all have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Has the Word of God failed? Not one word. Let's tie the bow and bring it together. Ezra 1, verse 1, helps us to marvel At the Lord of glory, who is King of kings, who directs even pagan conquerors of the world to accomplish His purposes and to preserve His people. God is gloriously in control. God is gloriously faithful. And God's Word is gloriously true. Let's bow together for prayer.